Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green, and I'm your host. This is part two, essentially, of my podcast for Christ the King Sunday, because it's really important stuff here, and it has a lot of bearing on, on the world today, in this particular moment in history, uh, but also on a grander scale, I think, the the implications are, are and, the, and the understanding for us has to do with the world we live in the world all around us, not just in the United States, but literally the world all around us and the way that that the people around us see reality and understand things and think about the world. It should be radically different from the way you think about the world, not because they're um, anti-Christian in a lot of ways, but because Christian worldview should be radically different from the worldview of somebody who doesn't have the understanding that that God came to earth incarnate in the form of Jesus Christ, died for the sins of the world, subjected himself to humanity, was crucified on a Roman cross for the sins of the whole world, um, rose again on the third day, and now is at the right hand of the Father in glory from which he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. That should absolutely make you a different human being from everybody else around you. Having that understanding, because what it says is, I don't just have a feeling or a thought or an idea about everything else. It says, I have a certainty, because the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I have a certainty about everything I have a certainty about who the real ruler of this world is, who the real ruler of this world will be. I have a certainty that I will live forever with the God who created everything, and I will live forever basking in his glory and his love. I will live in a perfect new creation, not broken in any way by sin, where there is neither sighing nor dying. And I know that with all my being, that's what a Christian should think. They should then be able to look at everything on this earth and understand that it's temporal. And the prayer that we pray uh, during one of the collects for the year is, is that help me to pass through things temporal that I lose not things eternal. Recognizing this world for what it is, it's a good thing because it's created by a loving God the same one who sent his son to die, that we might be with him forever. So it's a good thing, but it's a fallen thing, and it can't become the main thing. We've always got to hold everything in this world lightly, lest we lose our grip on eternity. So that's important, and so that's where I want to kind of come from today, and why it's important to re-up on this Christ the King idea. He's either our king or he's not. There's no halfway in having Christ as your king. If he's not completely your king, then you're far away. So let's talk about that a little bit. Let's go back again to the encyclical that that Pius XI wrote December 11th of 1925, in establishing Christ the King Sunday for the Roman Catholic Church. Like I said, none of us are Roman Catholic, probably. I I doubt if anybody listening to this is Roman Catholic. doesn't mean this isn't important. doesn't mean it doesn't have bearing. You'll see why 
I believe. So here's how he began the papal letter that's called an encyclical. In other words, it goes to all the churches that are in communion with Rome. So he says this, In the first encyclical which we, because you always speak of yourself in the royal we if you're the Pope, addressed at the beginning of our pontificate to the bishops of the universal church, in our first encyclical, we referred to the chief causes of the difficulties under which mankind was laboring. And we remember saying that these manifold evils in the world were due to the fact that the majority of men had thrust Jesus Christ and his holy law out of their lives. But these had no place either in private affairs or in politics. And we said further that as long as individuals and states refused to submit to the rule of our Savior, there would be no really hopeful prospect of lasting peace among nations. Men must look for the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ, and that we promise to do as far as lay in our power. In the kingdom of Christ, that is, it seemed to us that peace could not be more effectually restored nor fixed upon a firmer basis than the restoration of the empire of our Lord. This was just after the finish of World War II, the bloodiest, most personal, nasty uh, war that had ever been in the history of mankind. Fought all over Europe. Men fought for months to gain a foot of ground. Men died in trenches. It was nasty, nasty warfare. Chemicals were used. Young men, generations of young men in cities all over, in, in countries all over Europe were gone. How to repopulate was actually a problem because there was such a dearth of young, healthy men because so many were killed in that war. There were constant problems around the world. And as soon as that ended, what did we get? We got the Spanish influenza that killed more people than that. It, it was a world torn apart, a world that seemed bereft of God's love. It was easy to ask the question, where is God in that world? So much devastation, so much destruction, and so much death had occurred that as in other times in the past, people decided this whole religion thing's not worth it. There's no evidence of God. And so people began to be exactly as Pope Pius XI said. The majority of men had thrust Jesus Christ and his holy law out of their lives. These had no place in either private affairs or in politics. That sounding familiar to you? And that as long as that continued to be the case, there'd be no really hopeful prospect of lasting peace among nations. So the goal, as I read to you in the other one, was to, had to do with Christians. What it says here is, we firmly hope, however, that the feast of the kingship of Christ, which in future will be yearly observed, may hasten the return of society to our loving Savior. It would be the duty of Catholics to do all that they can to bring about this happy result. He thought that by changing Christians, the world might change. Revival always starts in the church, and that's what he was hoping for. In addition to the, war, the world war, as well as influenza, everything was changing. Financially, everything was falling apart. 
nations were having to spend all their money rebuilding and not thinking and moving towards the future. We're in the early ages, uh, in some ways, of the Industrial Revolution. Life was bleak. And worldliness had arisen. So you see things like the flappers and, and all the stuff that's going on in the 20s as people celebrate the end of horrible things. This is even before the Depression, remember. But at that time, another thing was going on, and that is is that people were um, arguing for, openly arguing for, something that had never really been before, and that's just contraception that was easily acquired, as well as abortion. And so th the world was moving in a different direction. One of the main reasons for that, one of the... Um, the, the drivers for that was <clears throat> whether people are aware of it, nobody hardly is aware of philosophy in general, but philosophy filters into the system through the academy, and then it gets taught. It may not get taught straight up as philosophy, but new ideas come in. They may not be credited. They may be so radical that their sources can't be pointed to, but those ideas come in the academy and that academy can go back as far as high school at this it can go even further than that as we're seeing today where they're teaching um, transgenderism and uh, homosexuality is a good and maybe even a better good than heterosexuality and so you've got all these teachings coming at people and it becomes indoctrination they may not actually say, go read this person, go read that person, you'll understand this. They'll just be teaching a new way and challenging the old understanding of things. And so <clears throat> there was a man born in 1844, died in 1900. His name was Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche is a, is, was a dangerous man. Nietzsche, father was a... Uh, pastor, rejected the faith himself, hated it, in fact, despised the Christian faith. Um, Nietzsche wrote a book called Thus Spake Zarathustra. I'm not encouraging you to read it. It, it, it will make you physically ill, possibly. It, but I'm not keeping you from it either. I'm just telling you, this stuff is so antithetical to Christianity that it's difficult for me to read, actually, because it feels like it comes from some other place. So he's got this character, Zarathustra, who has gone up into the mountains and comes back with understanding. And one of the understandings that, that Zarathustra has is he hates herd animals. And so if you've listened to the first one podcast for this, what you'll see is, is that in that one, the Old Testament lesson is completely about the Lord God announcing that he... In fact, he says, I, I myself. It's intensified. Lest you miss it. I said it three times for you there. Um, it, lest you miss it, I, I myself will come and will shepherd my people. And I'll thin the herd by removing those that are a danger to the rest of the herd, those who have not cared for their fellows. I'm going to remove them. And then... Once I've done that, once I've got the herd established in the right places and given them everything they need to thrive and survive, after I have come and shepherded themselves to that point, I'm going to appoint one shepherd, my son David, over them. So Jesus will be the shepherd. And he says, I am the good shepherd. 
So here, what you see is Nietzsche, through his character Zarathustra, disdainful of the herd. Herd animals don't wish to carry a burden or do anything like that. They just want safe, an abundant pasture, a quiet, no surprises, relatively wealthy life. They have everything they could need, most things they could want. The herds stick close together, and they don't take any risks. They rely on the shepherd to show them what's good for them. Zarathustra hated that idea. Listen to that again if you've got a chance to rewind it, and then read the 23rd Psalm and read the 34th chapter of Ezekiel. Everything God promises that he will do for his people, Zarathustra hates. All of it. Rejects that as an idea for good life. So, you're rejecting herd mentality, but what you're rejecting is the shepherd, the one who laid down his life for his sheep, who said he was going to do it before he did it. It's the opposite, exactly the opposite of Christianity and the promise of God. In that, he tells a parable as a way of trying to wake people up, he t Zarathustra tells a parable. And the parable has three characters. It begins with, it's, it's basically the metamorphosis that, that a man must go through if he's going to be truly a man, a free man. And the first thing is, he says, everybody's pretty much, you start off as a camel. Not, not a shepherd, not, not a herd animal, but a, but a camel. And a camel can bear great weight, go long distances, can take on more weight, just happy in its own strength. And that's what they're celebrated for. So the camel is the first part of our journey. And, and we, so we move from a herd animal to being a camel. And a camel acquires more and more knowledge, more and more weight, is proud of its strength and happy to take on those burdens. It says, there are many things for the spirit, for the strong, heavy spirit in which dwell respect and all. Its strength longs for the heavy, for the heaviest. Thus it kneels down like the camel and wants to be well laden. Wants to take on knowledge, wants to take on all this stuff. And is, is proud of all of that. Reads, travels, learns, uncovers. The weight adds up and adds up. And then at some point, at the end, the camel then deals with the most difficult things that life throws at it. But it gets lonely, and it no longer wants to bear the burden of all those ideas. It's got to get down to the stuff that it really believes, and it will hold on to itself. There's no reason to carry these burdens, is what the camel finally decides. And, and that is, at the end, the camel says... The world doesn't have actually universal values. There's not just one meaning in life. There are many religions. There are many paths to God. There are all of those things. And so the camel finally gets to the point after it acquires all the knowledge of all those religions that it says, I will. I will. I'm taking control of my destiny. And then that begins the second leg of the journey because that's not quite enough. So then it, they, what happens is, is that once you've made the decision to break free of that, you've got to become your own Lord and your own ruler. 
And so what Nietzsche says is that um, you've got to struggle. The, the, that next metamorphosis is the lion. The transformation metamorphosis, same word, um, is a lion. And what Nietzsche says is that lion has to struggle with the existing Lord in order to become the Lord. And he portrays the Lord as a dragon. And that dragon is called Thou Shalt. That language, clearly biblical. And he sees that the dragon is the true, the great barrier to true freedom. Thou shalt is permission. You've got to go to somebody to get that permission. To be told the rules of the game. It's the morals and values that society has accepted. But you've broken free of society because you have knowledge, recognition, and revelation that society doesn't have. And so that dragon is seductive. It has golden scales on each scale glitters a thou shalt, which seems like great permission to do all kinds of things. And so the dragon, however, is the enemy of true mastery because you're still seeking permission, mother may I. So when the dragon confronts, the lion confronts the dragon, the, dragon, the lion says, I will, but the dragon says, all values are already created. The dragon says, there shall be no more, I will. And then the lion has to fight the dragon to become lord of the desert and win its freedom. And then the lion, when it confronts the dragon, it roars, what Zarathustra calls the sacred no, the rejection of all values that came before the lion himself. And that's when you become the overman, the uberman, the ubermensch. And now that lion has only its own will. And it stands alone and it stands above because it has risen above the rest of humanity in recognizing the truth is me. You have to learn enough to get to the point where the truth is me because you have to have known enough to reject all of that. And now you stand alone. You stand above all things. You are the uberman. And then what happens next? Well, I'm free to do anything at this point. And so I move from being a lion to being a child. Innocence and forgetfulness, he says, a new beginning, a game, a self-propelling wheel, a first motion, a sacred yes. But a yes to what? A yes to me. A child is curious and filled with wonder, not weighed down by rules and values, discovers for themselves the meaning of things. Having uttered the sacred no to reject everything that came before, the child shouts the sacred yes that affirms life. That's how we've gone in the past 50 years or so. It was already happening in the 20s when the Pope Pius wrote that encyclical. We're living at the end of the game. When all those who have rejected Jesus Christ for whatever reason now declare themselves to be masters, not just of themselves, however, but masters of us all. And it's our responsibility to accept their rules. They don't realize that in this they've become the dragon. And so there is power enough to make sure that it happens. And they use all the levers of power available to them to make sure that you 
are not allowed to dissent from that truth that they've discovered that you need to be taught to accept because they are the overman and you are the underman. Christ the King Sunday was put in place specifically so the church would recognize the lordship in all things of Jesus Christ. Can we see that? Is that what you see when you see the church? Is, it, is the church submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ or is the church as compromised by that same idea as the world? It's rejected the wisdom of the ages. It's rejected the wisdom of history and said, no, you have it wrong. You misunderstood those passages. You misunderstood everything. I, however, the enlightened ones, have the truth. You have to accept it, or you won't get ordained. You won't get anything. We'll make sure your kind goes away. I can remember when I first decided to accede to the will of God for my life, when I first res he restored the call in my life, I, I went and told our priest. And he said, John, I agree with you 100%. But I won't subject you to the process in this diocese because they would destroy you and then they would never let you go to seminary anyway and they would never ordain you. I just said, okay. And I found another pathway. But I always had a nagging feeling that that was not true. That there had to be a way. And then a friend of mine several years later, went through the process. And the church had gone farther down the road then. When he presented himself to the bishop, the bishop said, well, before we go any further, I'd like you to go and meet with somebody who would be the head of your committee, your discernment committee, to figure out if you're really called and should be ordained and have lunch with her. So he went and he met with her. And the first thing she asked him had nothing to do with Jesus. It had to do with what he believed about homosexuality. And he said, I'm positive the Bible is perfectly clear that it's unacceptable conduct, that it's sin. She looked at him and told him, you're never going to be ordained, and I'll make certain of that. He had to leave where we were moved several hundred miles away to a friendlier diocese to those who believe the traditional faith in order to get ordained. I'm glad to say that he did it. He followed the call. He went where the Lord took him, and he has an incredibly successful ministry today. But that's the world we live in. That's the church we live in. The church doesn't accept the lordship of Jesus Christ in all things. It's Nietzschean in its outlook on life. It, it has new revelation, never heard before in the history of the world, but it threw off the tyranny of the old. It threw off the tyranny of the church and decided that it could remake itself, and it certainly can, but it can't remake the faith. It can't remake the Word of God. It can't remake the history that stands before it. It says it stands on the right side of history, but history is not written 
until the coming again of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom on this earth. We treat people in certain ways, and, and, and here's something that I want to end with, and it comes from C.S. Lewis. And Lewis talks about mere mortals. It has to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. It has to do with fulfilling the words of Jesus in the 25th chapter of Matthew, the gospel reading from Matthew 25, 31 to 46, where he says that the king comes in glory to judge the nations, and it, he judges them based on one thing. When I was hungry, did you give me food? When I was thirsty, did you give me drink? When I was a stranger, did you welcome me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was sick, did you visit me? And when I was in prison, did you come to me? And the righteous say to him, we've never seen you in any of those conditions. And he says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Christ the King Sunday focuses on the lordship of Jesus Christ all over all our lives. And when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he meant actively, not passively. And so the way we actively love our neighbors is the way we're going to be judged in the end. Our faith is shown by our actions. And so here's the reminder that I want to make to you, and this fits in with that whole lion thing and the whole next phase of being a child and reinterpreting all the rules, rejecting everything that's come before. And so this is a quote from C.S. Lewis, and he says, it may be possible, it's extended, by the way, you're going to have to listen a while, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deep about that of his neighbor. You see, Nietzsche doesn't even talk about a neighbor. There's just you. Right? And so you, you, you don't just have autonomy. There's a will to power that he also wrote about where you want power over everything else. Other people have to accept your truth. You can, you can live with other people's truth so long as it doesn't conflict too greatly with yours and doesn't convict you in any way that, well, your truth might actually be wrong. And so it allows for truths to live alongside each other because it recognizes everyone as an uberman unless they have an opposing view that contradicts and says, no, there is an actual truth. And you can't ultimately, in the end, determine your own truth. And you're not the uberman. So there's not room for the other in the same way there is in Christianity. And that's what I'm telling you. And that's the reason Jesus points to that, how we treat one another, as the ultimate standard that he says the king will have. Is because we've got to not think of ourselves as the uberman. So, again, back to Lewis. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or, load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back. Remember that with the camel? A load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. 
all day long. We are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It's in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It's with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealing with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours is the life of a gnat. But it's immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we're to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love, with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he's your Christian neighbor, he's holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ, very latitat, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself, is truly hidden. When we serve one another, we serve the one in whose image we are created. That truly breaks the back of the lion. When we embrace, thou shalt, rather than I will. We speak the sacred yes to the Lordship of Jesus Christ for all he has done for us, for laying down his life, for the resurrection, for the glory, the ascension, and the coming again. We bow the knee and we say the sacred Yes. And in that, we find joy, we find play, we find true creativity. For then, and only then, are we truly human, truly who we were created to be, and free men and women. You've been listening to Basic Understanding. Thanks for being on the journey. Sorry that I needed two podcast to get this one thing said and done today, but there's two angles in, from which I needed to speak about this. One is from the church, to see him that way, and then so you can see the world and see where you've accepted some part of that into your life. And now you can again bow the knee, accept the freedom that comes with being a child of the living God. God bless. I'll see you next week as we begin Advent.